Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and joining me today is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. The cricket's on, the sun is shining. I wonder how many people are at their desks in the city uh, watching the market. What's been the story in the market this week, Simon? Well, the kind of headline is that the market or the UK market certainly ended in positive territory, probably up about 0.7% if you look at the FTSE all share index. Uh, the investment companies market probably a little bit behind it, to be honest. It still should end in positive territory, but a little bit behind the wider UK market. And in fact, this week we've seen the sector average discount drift out a little. It probably started the week about two and a half percent probably ended nearer to 3%. But I think you make a good point. I think the sun is undoubtedly shining and certainly trading volumes are lower, probably about 25% lower than they were, certainly the average level over the last six months. So it feels as if the summer lull is underway, but undoubtedly the market remains preoccupied with inflation concerns, uh, a lot of scrutiny of the economic data that pops up every now and again. And the big question seems to be is how transitory this uh, inflation spike uh, will prove. And will the US Federal Reserve stay the course? Will it remain lower for longer? Uh, Will it hold rates down? So that seems to be the main talking point, as it has been now for a number of months. But obviously, the G7 summit is underway. And though the UK media, at least, will be very focused on the transatlantic relationship, I think most people will be far more concerned perhaps, or again, we'll look very closely at the US's relationship with China. That seems to have a far larger impact on markets. And of course, also, I guess there is the fact, the other big topic, which is uh, certainly on the agenda of the Biden administration, is the future of corporate tax rates around the world. That in due course might have an impact on the way that the markets look at valuations of companies. Of course, we don't know what the proposal is. We don't know what, if anything, will be agreed And we don't know how, of course, that will impact different parts of the market, different companies and different sectors. But for the meantime, we press on. The markets, as you say, are quiet, but uh, uh, moving gently along at the moment. No great alarms. The inflation is definitely first and foremost, as we say. But the evidence there is, I think, a bit more mixed than it was, or at least slightly less concerning to the markets than it was at the start of the year. Let's move on and talk about something on the home territory, a bit of corporate activity. Not much to report in this sector this week, actually, but uh, let's kick off. There is a manager change or news about a manager departure at Bailey Gifford. There is indeed. So we learned this week that Roderick Snell, who has been the deputy portfolio manager of Pacific Horizon Investment Trust since 2013, has now become uh, the portfolio manager. So he has become responsible for this investment trust. And this follows the news that uh, Ewan Markson Brown, who'd been the manager on this one for a period of time, is, according to Uh, media reports at least, leaving Bailey Gifford to join Crux Asset Management. Uh, And so Roddy Snell gets the chance to to step up. As always with these things, manager changes, you always have a close look at it and you wonder whether it has any impact on the uh, investment approach. In this case, it's worth noting that actually Roddy and and Ewan would work together for any number of years. They're part of a a well-resourced team at Bailey Gifford, the Emerging Market Equities team, and one suspects it will be just a continuation business as usual. I mean, Crux Asset Management is a, a sort of boutique investment company. It's been going since 2014, I think. 
and uh, there's some a couple of quite well-known fund managers work there. So it will be a change of pace, maybe, and a change of scene for uh, the departing fund manager. Though I have to say, I think it's quite unusual for lead fund managers at Bailey Gifford to leave, is that uh, it is a partnership where people tend to stay. They tend to hire them very young, train them in the Bailey Gifford way. And, uh, you know, normally you'd expect, to, I think, to see out the course, as uh, James Anderson and Sarah Whitley and many others have done over the years. But uh, as you say, we don't know exactly what the circumstances are. So we wish him well, however his uh, future pans out. And let's move on and talk briefly about another thing, about another trust that we mentioned recently, uh, with some management changes. This is a PRS REIT, which is an investment trust that uh, invests in building or, and acquiring and uh, developing um, private rental accommodation for outside London. We talked about them the other day. Uh, what's, what's the news there? Yeah, so an interesting development. We learned this week that uh, an entity called Six Bidco has made a recommended cash offer for Sigma Capital Group. And Sigma Capital Group is the parent company of PRS REIT's investment advisor. So this company, Six Bidco, has just been formed for the purposes of acquisition. It's a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, investment funds managed by Pinebridge Benson Elliott. Uh, and the acquisition has been unanimously recommended by Sigma's independent directors and has the support from independent shareholders. So it kind of looks as if it has the wind in its sails. So there's no kind of significant disruption envisaged as a result of this. And in fact, the board of PRS REIT, according to this statement, is reassured that there'll be no changes to the team uh, who provide services to the fund and that service levels will be uninterrupted. So again, it's another case of it's business as usual. Okay, one to watch, maybe. Let's move on and talk about fundraising. The fundraising goes on. The markets may be quiet, but the fundraising goes on, particularly in the sectors that have been fairly prominent this year in raising more money. And uh, in this case, we've, I think, got uh, some quite significant news from uh, more than one trust in the infrastructure sector. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, infrastructure has been, as we've talked about in weeks gone by, a, a very popular asset class. And, you know, just in terms of the amount of money raised across the investment company sector so far this year, infrastructure probably accounts for about 33% of it. So a significant amount. This week, we learnt that Digital 9 infrastructure had raised £175 million for an oversubscribed uh, fundraising. In fact, they were looking to raise uh, £100 million, so significantly north of that. And that reflects strong demand, unsurprisingly, but also the strength, apparently, of the investment pipeline. And this is quite significant because this company only came to the market back in March. It raised £300 million. So it's, again, it's a significant chunk of capital to raise uh, in a relatively short period after its launch. But that capital will be deployed in, as the name would suggest, its digital infrastructure. So it's US, UK, Northern European data centres, UK terrestrial fibre platforms and a UK wireless infrastructure business as well. So um, according to the statement, the, the investment team believe there's a, a big pipeline there. And that would be in accordance with its kind of closest rival, Cordiant Digital Infrastructure, which also came to the market earlier this year, back in February. It raised £370 million pounds, uh, through its IPO and it launched a C-share. Uh, it was aiming to raise £250 million, uh, And in fact, that came in at £185 million. And again, they've got a, a pipeline of investments. They were talking about an £800 million pound pipeline of investments. But again, it's interesting, both of those funds relatively recently launched and both now raising additional capital, quite a substantial amounts in a short period of time. So once again, proving the truth of the old adage that uh, the most important thing is to get to the starting line. Once you get to the starting line, you've got a chance uh, 
clearly of adding more money as uh, time goes by if the market uh, reacts positively to your introduction to the market, but uh, not so easy if you uh, can't get to the first threshold. So the infrastructure sector is bulking up quite uh, nicely and becoming slightly more diversified with this specialist digital infrastructure trusts. How big are these two trusts going to be now compared to uh, some of the other players in this uh, popular sector, as you say? Yeah, it's a good point because um, obviously the sector is is relatively immature. I mean, it probably go back 10 years. There would have only been one or two names uh, at that time. And we have seen a lot of capital flow into this area. So, you know, these companies, Digital9 and Cordians, have, have had a good start. But to put that in context, if you look at the uh, more general infrastructure funds, you've got probably the largest remains Hickel with a market cap of about 3.3 billion, uh, international public partnerships about 2.8 billion, Sequoia economic infrastructure just short of uh, 2 billion. So all pretty substantial. And of course, there's 3i infrastructure as well, which has performed very strongly over the period, 2.7 billion. So they're all decent size funds. And that's important uh, in as much as they have their own gravity and they attract in uh, institutional investors because they're sufficiently large enough vehicles for them to back. Uh, and then obviously on the renewable energy infrastructure side, we've seen a significant growth there. And um, probably the, the big boys worth mentioning are Trig, so Renewables Infrastructure Group, 2.7 billion market cap. Uh, and not too far behind them, Greencoach UK Wind, 2.5 billion. So all these things are trading, or nearly all of them are trading on uh, significant premiums. But uh, the digital ones, they've not yet uh, gone to the kind of premiums that we've seen with some of the other ones. So do you think that's um, a matter of time? Or do you think that uh, it's just a difference in the kind of infrastructure that they're investing in? How would you think these might go in terms of uh, the market uh, performance over the next uh, few months and years? Yeah, I mean, I think they're both on premium ratings, but obviously there's just been quite a significant liquidity event for both names. And so although one was a C-share, so it's a different share class in the case of Cordiant. But still, that's always going to cap your premium uh, in the short term if you if you offer additional paper. It's still very early days. I mean, as, as discussed, they're literally into the first few months of, of their lives. They're still deploying capital. Um, I don't think Eva's actually paid a, a dividend yet, though. I think certainly that's in the pipeline. So it uh, it remains to be seen. But clearly, as reflected by the fact they've been able to raise so much capital, that people are quite excited about this as an asset class and believe that it has merit. And just finally on this particular issue, I mean, the fact that Cordiant is raising money via a C-share and raised less than they were hoping for, but the uh, Digital Nine just doing a fundraising without a C-share, and they actually raised more than they were expecting. Do you think there's any significance in that or any correlation between those two? Or is it just, again, about the uh, particular specifics of the two trusts and what they're trying to do? Well, you know, I think there's a, a little bit of a game of kind of managing expectations here. So, you know, one raised 175 million, one raised 185 million. So not an awful lot in it. But if you do set out your target at 250 and you come in at 185, then, you know, perhaps people might get a little bit disappointed. Conversely, if you say we're you know, looking to raise 100 million, you come in at 175, then it's kind of happy days where obviously the net result is not dissimilar. I think probably what's more interesting is that according to have gone down the C-share route, Whereas, you know, as you just noted, Digital9 have been happy to do a placing. The trick with that is that you have to deploy your capital relatively quickly if you're going to do a placing of ordinary shares, else there's a cash drag on your existing portfolio. So if you do a C-share, that problem goes away because until it's fully invested or largely fully invested, uh, and that's the point where the C-shares flip into the ordinary shares. But yes, I mean, look, I'm sure they all took advice from their very experienced advisors and, and kind of went their own routes on it. But the net result for each is probably not dissimilar. 
Indeed, it is not. OK, and there's one more coming along, like <laughs> like the buses, not quite in the same area. It's in the other sector, the renewables infrastructure sector. And this is uh, Octopus Renewables Infrastructure, O-R-I-T. And they're looking to uh, cash in on this uh, demand out there as well, I think. Well, you might be able to say that. Um, I think what what is true is that they've said this week they're looking to raise £100 million via replacing an open offer, offer for subscription and intermediaries offer. It's an interesting development, this one. So Octopus Renewables was launched at the back end of 2019. It was a, a very strong IPO that raised £350 million. And basically last year, 2020, they got on with deploying that capital. Um, and they haven't actually raised any money since that uh, initial IPO. So this will be a good test to see where their investor base is uh, and whether they can attract new investors onto their register the placing price will be at uh, 103 spot 5p and that represents uh, a 6% premium to their NAV at the end of March and a 3 4% discount to their closing share price before they announced it and again they're talking about a very strong pipeline which is important as discussed the 256 million pounds uh, under exclusivity so the idea is they can deploy this capital very quickly but it'd be interesting to see how this one goes i mean octopus is a well known uh fund manager, but at least was originally known to me for not operating in this area, but they seem to have made a good start here, as you say. And their shares also trade, as you say, on a syndicate premium or have been doing a double digit premium or thereabouts. Okay, so we'll see how that one goes. Let's move on and start talking about some results. And we're going to kick off in our friendly flexible investment sector. And we're going to start off with Aberdeen Diversified Income and Growth. That's A-D-I-G who had the interim results out for the six months to the end of March. And in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 2.8%. In share price terms, uh, it was stronger, up 6.8%. And it's worth noting that they are actually targeting a a total return of 6% per annum over a rolling five-year period. So that 2.8 NAV total return is kind of broadly in line with what they're trying to achieve. Income is an important part of this particular uh, investment trust story. And the revenue per share uh, came in at 2.79p. That was up 13% from the equivalent period to the end of March 2020. And also they've declared uh, total dividends of 2.76p. So again, interesting story, this one. They they effectively had a reboot uh, of this one uh, not that long ago. A chap called Nalaka da Silva took responsibility for this one at the end of September last year. And as they put it, they've kind of streamlined the strategy. So there's kind of four pots, listed equities, listed fixed income and credit, listed alternatives and the private markets. And it's really that private markets bit that they're looking to um, allocate more of the portfolio to. So they've got a kind of guide of between 45 and 50 percent of the portfolio they want to be invested in those private markets. And what does that mean? Well, um, it's quite a lot of money in credit and infrastructure again. And the idea, as suggested by that total return of 6% per annum, it's a kind of slow, incremental kind of growth story. So it should be less volatile than you would expect and hope than a kind of pure equity type portfolio. And and that's why it sits in the the flexible investment subsector. But it's not as popular as some other trusts in that sector. I think if, if the discount is anything to go by, was the discount a factor in the change of strategy? And has it had any effect so far in terms of how they trade, the shares trade? Yeah, so it's probably trading in the mid-teens and performance has been an issue on this particular investment trust. So, I mean, if you look at the NAV total returns over a five-year period, they're in positive territory where they're up 15%. 
uh, and that compares with the weighted average return on their peer group of about 57%. So in other words, they have lagged their peer group over the long term, and that'll be true over probably a one and three year period as well, to be honest. So I think performance had been an issue, as you as you rightly observed, that's reflected in the discount level. And uh, I, I think it's a case of giving the, the kind of new uh, investment team and this new approach time to bed in and, and, and deliver. But it is differentiated by the yield. So on a on a historic basis, the yield's about 5.4% at the moment, and that's significantly higher than most uh, investment trusts in that flexible investment sector. So that is the kind of the USP of this particular one. Okay, and we'll move on to, I suppose, what we now have to call the big daddy in the flexible investment sector. This is Personal Assets Trust. PNL is the ticker. This has been an extraordinary success story in some ways, but it's a very you know conservatively managed aim to preserve capital, uh, preserve and grow capital in that order, as they always say in their annual results and uh, annual report. And they have to just produce their annual results for the year ended the 30th of April. And uh, how did they do? They did okay. Their NAV total return was up 9.1%. Now that is not as high as the market. So the FTSE All Shares up 22.1% in that period. But it compares favourably with UK RPI, which was up 2.9%. And and really, it's this idea that they're not necessarily going to give you on a year-by-year basis uh, the market performance, but over the long term, they're pretty confident they can beat equity markets. But just to kind of give you some insight into the portfolio, certainly at the end of April, they had quite a large element of 54% in what they call liquidity. Uh, and that includes things like UK Treasury bills, cash. 33% of the portfolio is in US TIPS which are Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, uh, and they've got 9% in gold bullion. So they've got quite a lot in what I think some people would describe as kind of portfolio stabilizers. Uh, in addition to that, they have got investments in, um, in, in equities, and the focus of Sebastian Lyon of Triassic Management, who's responsible for this one, is on durable and profitable businesses, as he describes it. So in the last year, they've made new holdings in companies such as Alphabet, Visa, and Agilent, uh, and they've made additions to American Express, Franco Nevada, Nestle, Philip Morris, and Unilever. So these are all companies uh, I suspect most people would have heard from. But uh, Sebastian always writes a good investment manager's report, uh, and he shares his views on inflation, obviously a big talking point. And his view is that he expects real interest rates to move negative in the medium term as the era, as he puts it, of financial repression Uh, which is when interest rates are below the level of inflation, financial repression continues. Yes, indeed. And that's been a theme that he and others uh, in the same kind of camp have been pushing for a number of years now. They've been following that and they're wary of uh, valuations or became wary of valuations in the stock market. I thought it was interesting. They did actually have sold some of their long-term holdings like Coca-Cola, you know, one of Warren Buffett's favourite long-term holdings and Colgate and BAT. They've all got rid of all those. And they have been investing, you know, as I said, you put a big holding in Alphabet, which is effectively Google. And so it's interesting that, you know, although those who argue about high valuations tend to be quite wary about the tech sector, Google is, you know, something which they've added to their portfolio, and they obviously believe has long term potential, as many others do. So it's interesting that the way they've changed their stock portfolio, I think also was interesting, I might mention this, I mean, Funnily enough, I can remember all the way back. So this is probably before your time even. I'm sorry to keep mentioning that. But back to the day when Personal Asset Trust was effectively taken over by Ian Rushbrook from Ivory and Syme, uh, who started it. And then 
began this process of turning it into a uh, the investment trust of choice as they saw it for private investors. And it has been an extraordinary success with a zero discount policy. I was just looking at some of the numbers that they put in that annual report, and they are quite striking. I mean, the number of shares in issue have gone up from that very big, small beginning when they had about 8 million, it was all they had in terms of shareholders' funds, 149,000 shares outstanding. Uh, they've now got 3.3 million shares outstanding. I mean, it's been an extraordinary success story in terms of growing this trust through uh, managing the discount. And their uh, shareholders' funds are now 1.5 billion. So, I mean, it's an extraordinary success story over a period of uh, something like 30 years. So I think we have to give them credit. And um, they've managed the succession from Ian Rushbrook, who sadly died in 2008, to uh, Troy Asset Management. has been a success. And it continues to be very popular with people. I think their target is, as you say, to deliver return above inflation. And over the longer term, they hope actually to match the performance of the ore share. But doesn't always work out that way on a year-to-year basis. And they claim they always want to be less volatile than every other trust in the flexible investment sector and something which they uh, mostly achieve. So we have to acknowledge it's a phenomenon. How long they can keep going? Well, we never know in the investment trust business. Things change, but uh, no reason to think there'll be any change in the short term. Let's move on and talk about uh, a UK trust, Bailey Gifford UK Growth, BGUK. We know the Bailey Gifford story. I suspect that they had a decent year in their latest year. You're absolutely right. So they have their annual results up for the year to the end of April again. The NAV total return was up 37.7% and that compared with a rise of just short of 26% for the FTSE All Share Index in that time. In share price terms, uh, they were even stronger, up nearly 54%. So yes, a good story here. And as you correctly observe, it is the Bailey Gifford idea of trying to back growth companies, this time obviously UK listed growth companies. Uh, and a very interesting portfolio, probably about 40, 45 stocks. Ian McCombie and Milena Mileva have been responsible for this one since the end of June 2018. So just coming up on about three years or so now. And again, some good commentary about the companies that they backed, the ones that worked, the ones that didn't. But they are very much long-term shareholders. So I think the portfolio turnover in this particular year was only 3%. So they did make some changes. There were two exits, Rolls-Royce and Mitchells and Butler's. Uh, were sold. And obviously, those uh, companies have been hit quite hard by market conditions or by the environment over the last year, I should say. And two new holdings ended up in the portfolio, Lancashire Holdings and Experian. But uh, some good commentary around some of their other names as well, and an interesting portfolio. And it, it is a bit of a riposte, really, to those people who suggest that the UK market doesn't host growth companies. I mean, clearly, this team at Bailey Gifford would take a different view. Uh, and certainly on the results of, the, of this relatively short period being a year, they would suggest that there's some merit in that. Indeed it is. And the shares uh, still trade well, I imagine. They do indeed. Yep. They're trading on a premium, probably about a 3 4% premium at present. Uh, and over the last 12 months, they've averaged, oh gosh, probably a discount of about 0.6%. So they, they have traded well. Okay. Well, let's move on now to some overseas trusts. And let's kick off by talking about uh, a couple of trusts, a couple of the Indian trusts. Let's start by talking about Aberdeen New India, A-N-I-I. What have they had to say? So they have their annual results out this time to the end of March this year. Again, a strong set of results, actually. Interestingly, the NAV total return was up 53%. However, that compared with a rise of 59% uh, for its benchmark. And it is worth noting, actually, when we go through these results and we're looking at periods uh, that effectively started the 1st of April last year or there or thereabouts, uh, people must remember that was invariably the market low or very near to the market low, which is why we're seeing these 
um, quite impressive returns. But for Aberdeen New India, their share price total return was up about 66%, just short of that. So in other words, uh, that did represent an outperformance of the benchmark and uh, obviously benefited from uh, the discount narrowing. Um, but what worked for this particular fund uh, in the period? Well, it was holdings in IT services were positive. Um, they also had exposure to businesses that were leveraged into the cyclical recovery. Uh, and also there were some holdings in the real estate and construction sectors as well that worked for them. Okay, well, we can move on and, and compare and contrast, as they say, with the JP Morgan Indian Investment Trust, JII, which has had some interim results, not annual results, for the last six months of the period you've just uh, described. That's right. And in that time, their NAV total return was up about 22%, and that compared with a rise of about 19% or so for the benchmark. In share price terms, uh, they did even better. Share price total return was up about 28% as the discount narrowed in. So again, what worked well for them? Well, it was things like companies in the materials, financials and commodities sector. So that probably this is where the, the, the rebound story kind of plays out. So they were overweight industrials, which was positive, uh, and they were underweight at the energy sector and healthcare, uh, which worked in their favour in this period. Okay, so we've got these two trusts, and uh, obviously one's reporting a six-month period, the other a year. But we can compare their ratings, and we can, I guess, look back at their performance over the last, say, three and five years. And uh, how do those two look together when compared? Yeah, so in, in terms of the ratings to start with, Aberdeen New India is probably on about a 13 14% discount at the moment, and the JP Morgan Fund is probably at a similar level. Um, and that's kind of the pattern with the uh, Indian funds. The exception to that is Ashoka India Equity, which I think we talked about in the last week or two, and they're trying to raise money. And in fact, they find themselves on a premium rating. But in terms of the performance records, well, if you look over five years, a five-year NAV total return, Aberdeen New India finds itself up about 69% or so, and that compares to a rise of 40% for the JP Morgan Fund. Over the shorter period, so let's say the last 12 months, there's not an awful lot in it, to be honest. So the Aberdeen Fund's up 40%, the JP Morgan Fund's up 39%, so really not much difference there at all. Okay, so let's move on and talk next about another country specialist, and this is Fidelity China Special Situations. One of the big three in the Chinese specialist trust sector. FCSS is the ticker, and they've had their annual results to the 31st of March. They have indeed. Uh, and again, um, going back to my comments earlier about the starting point is all important because these results are pretty spectacular. The NAV total return was up about 82%. That compared with a rise of the MSCI China uh, up 29%, so significant outperformance. In share price terms, share price total return was up 97% as the discount narrowed from about 9 to 1%. So clearly a very strong set of results. The outperformance uh, was driven by stock selection, though uh, gearing was also positive, as you might expect. The idea of the new China theme uh, worked very well for Dale Nichols and the team at Fidelity, and also consumer-related stocks uh, proved particularly strong performers. It's also worth noting as well that this investment trust has exposure or can invest in unquoted companies, so private companies. Uh, and at the end of the period, at the end of May, actually, I should say, they had about 8% of net assets uh, in 10 unlisted holdings. And in fact, what they're looking to do is that they are seeking shareholder approval to increase that exposure, or the maximum limit at least, uh, and enlisted holdings from 10% to 15%. 
But um, this investment trust has always been quite happy to deploy gearing on a net geared basis. They're about 18% or they were at the end of March. And despite that strong outperformance, uh, there's been a, a fee change. The management fee uh, has effectively come down. And again, this is a, a familiar story. So basically on assets up to one and a half billion, there will be 0.9% or 90 basis points will be paid on net assets. And that falls to 70 or 0.7% thereafter. Uh, and again, a familiar story. Yes. And then, of course, obviously, we know that the Chinese trust or the China trust were very hot, so to speak, in the last quarter of last year, along with uh, obviously a number of other trusts. But in terms of the ratings, how have they moved over that period? I mean, one or two of them went to quite big premiums. The Bailey Gifford one certainly did. What's the story been with Fidelity China? Yeah, so it's probably trading on a very small discount at the moment, probably even less than 1%. In the last 12 months, it's averaged about a 3 3.5% discount. But there obviously has been quite a lot of volatility during that time. So um, it's been up on a premium, probably 2% or so, but it's also been as wide as a 12% discount, though I suspect that was quite fleeting. So quite a bit of discount volatility, and that's true for all those Chinese funds, though obviously the Bailey Gifford one's a little bit different because um, that moved across to Bailey Gifford, I think, in September last year. Indeed, not directly comparable, therefore. Okay, so we'll move on in this sector to Templeton Emerging Markets, TEM. Uh, they've also had annual results for the same period. How have they been performing? Yes, yeah, so some people call this the flagship investment trust in this emerging markets sector. Though obviously that's not to be confused necessarily with the with the best performer at any one moment in time. But they had annual results out for the year to the end of March, uh, in which time they did outperform actually. So the NAV total return was up about 54, 55%. And that compared to a rise of 43% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. In share price terms, even stronger. So the share price total return was up 59.5%. So what worked for them? Well, actually, they had a very good stock selection and sector allocation uh, in that time. I mean, some of the key contributors included Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, Samsung Electronics uh, and Naver, whereas detractors included Unilever Brilliance, China Automotive and Alibaba, names that we probably discussed before. Uh, but Chetham Siegel and Andrew Ness have been, or certainly Chetham's been responsible for about February 2018. So through three years now, and uh, their performance has been pretty strong during that time. Yes, there were some questions at the time when um, when Mark Mobius, who was, if you like, the founder, fund manager of that trust way back in the 1980s, when he, uh, when he left, there was some question whether they... Uh, the star fund manager effect would come into play, but in fact, they seem to weather the storm very well and they continue to perform very well. So it's been a very credible performance. Perhaps I might say editorialising a little bit, as it often turns out to be the case. The process is just as important as the name of the star fund manager. And if the process is good, then it can continue from one generation to the next. Let's move on. We've got uh, one result from the property sector. We'll take that one now before we go on to look at some specialist trusts, and that is Urban Logistics REIT, which has the ticker SHED, SHED, very appropriate. Uh, and they've also had some annual results out for the period to the 31st of March. They have in which time their EPRA NTA, which is the, the property equivalent of NAV, uh, that was up 10.5%. And in fact, the total return was up 15.6%. Uh, so just bearing in mind, obviously, quite a tough period for commercial property over the last year. But clearly there are exceptions and logistics or logistic warehouses have certainly done very well. So the portfolio saw an upward revaluation of about 13%. Uh, and in terms of rent collection, well, more than 99% of rent due was collected during that financial year. 
So their earnings per share was actually down about 12%, but that was more a reflection of the fact they issued new shares rather than any problems in terms of their rent collection. And in fact, their dividend declared in respect to the financial year came in at 7.6p, and that was in line with the previous year. And part of that will be paid out of property disposal profits. And the board have actually given some guidance on that, and they said they will endeavour to at least maintain the dividend each year, even when new shares have been issued. But it's, you know, it's a story that is developing, and I think the board uh, seem to be ambitious for the future of this one. They want to kind of get it to a size that they can justify a move uh, to the premium listing in the near future. So what does that mean? At the moment, they'll be on the specialist funds market. And if they move to the premium listing, it means that uh, index buyers, it becomes part of the all share potentially if it's large enough and liquid enough. Uh, and so it just becomes a more mainstream investment. And I guess if they did, it would probably would be uh, big enough to get into one of the indices. It's up against Tritax Big Box, uh, which was a kind of pioneer, I think, in this space, and Warehouse REIT. And how do those three compare in size and uh, performance and rating? Yeah, well, they're all highly rated um, for the, the reasons that we discussed before. So, uh, you know, mid-teens is not uncommon. Probably the range is about 12 to 16% premium ratings. Uh, in terms of size, you're absolutely right. Tritax Big Box Three and a half billion pounds now market cap, so a substantial investment company. Thereafter, well, Warehouse REIT, uh, 630 plus market cap, and Urban Logistics, over 400 million. So they've all done well to date. Though I think, interesting enough, just looking at the dividend of this one, you said uh, 7.6p. The yield on this one is not particularly uh, appealing at first sight, should we say, but they have, had, uh, they have delivered some capital growth as well. What is the yield on that one? I've got the yield at 5.1% at the moment, though I will stand to be corrected if you have different information in front of you. Uh, no, I'm just looking at the <laughs> I'm looking at the AIC statistics. I hope this is not a case where the AIC statistics have fallen down. <laughs> We'd perish the thought. It would be a, a terrible day if that were to happen. <laughs> <laughs> we can work it out ourselves, can't we? I mean, the current share price is it's about 160p, something like that. Yep. 162 it closed at, yeah. So 7.6p over 160. I'm sure you can calculate that in your head. Well, yeah, it doesn't sound like 5.1% actually. Might have to do a rain check on the dividend level. It's not far off though, is it? I mean, it's uh, if it's 150p, it's sort of two thirds of 7.6. I don't think it's that far off. Anyway, we don't always have all this data in front of us when we record this podcast. We should, obviously, but we've uh, fallen down on this one, uh, which just goes to show I hope that we are human and fallible. Let's move on quickly and talk about some specialist trust results. Let's kick off with the Biotech Growth Trust, BIOG. They've had some annual results out. They had they had their annual results out to the end of March, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 55%. And that compared with a rise for their benchmark of 25%, so significant outperformance. In share price terms, they did even better. The share price total return was up 75% as their discount narrowed from uh, nearly 13% down to 1%. So what worked for them? Well, a large allocation to emerging biotech as opposed to large cap biotech. They also benefited from some M&A activity uh, in their sector and also some exposure to Chinese holdings. And again, a fascinating area of the market. This is another uh, investment trust company run by an outfit called Orbimed. Jeff Shoes, the manager, has been for a number of years now and uh, again, provides a huge amount of insight into that end of the market. Okay, and as I say, it's worth emphasising that point about the period here. Obviously, all these results we talked about for companies that have annual years to 31st of March are going to look pretty good. 
Uh, it's not to say they haven't done very well over longer periods as well. And biotech growth would be an example of that. Uh, they've done consistently well over a number of years. But let's talk about, I didn't expect to see this name come back again, but here we are, Gabelli Value Plus Plus, ticker GVP. We talked an awful lot about that last year, about the little bit of the showdown between the uh, the board and the uh, management company. They've actually produced some results now, and uh, I dare say that'll be of some interest to people. Well, they had their final results out for the year to the 31st of March, in which time they've performed strongly, actually. The NAV was up about 64%, and that compared with a rise of 41% for the S&P 500 index. In share price terms, even better, actually, up 98% as the discount uh, moved from about 20% to, to 4%. Just to remind people, it's a, it's a basically the portfolios exposed to US companies. Uh, there's some small cap companies in there, and a number of those obviously performed quite well in the period. But you're right <laughs> to be surprised that there has been an ongoing battle between the shareholders and the board versus the investment manager. And in fact, they've now provided some more detail on how this potentially might end. Uh, there's a general meeting on the 12th of July to vote on the fund's continuation, bearing in mind it's already failed one continuation vote last year, and the members' voluntary liquidation. An associated capital group, which is a the largest shareholder in the in the investment company, but also an affiliate of its investment manager, has agreed not to vote on those two resolutions. And in fact, the board is recommending shareholders to vote against continuation and in favour of the members' voluntary liquidation. So, you know, you kept calling this, I think, the shootout at the OK Corral, I seem to remember. Well, we now have a date for that shootout. So that meeting is on the 12th of July, as you say. Oh, it would be interesting to see how it goes. I mean, if you like, I suppose the team at Associated Capital Group that runs the team will say, well, just look how well we performed over this uh, recent period. And, uh, you know, maybe you guys are being a little bit hasty here in uh, trying to get rid of us and wind up this trust. Do you think it's going to change anything? I mean, the discount has come right in, and that's one reason why the share price has done so well. But that may not be a reflection of the performance of the trust so much as a expectation that it may indeed be going out of business. Uh, quite shortly, when you would expect the discount to come right in, obviously, if it was liquidated. Do you have any thoughts of what we might read into all this? Do you think the vote will go through or not? Do you have any, any straws in the wind here, Simon? Well, I think it's worth looking at the long-term performance record of this particular investment trust. And, and certainly on a five-year NAV sort of return basis, it's up about 70%, which is certainly not disastrous by any means. But when you compare that to JP Morgan uh, American, which is the kind of the largest US-focused investment trust in the space, that's up 138%. And certainly the S&P 500 is up about 125, 126%. So in other words, Gabelli Value Plus may have done quite well over the last year or so, but certainly their long-term numbers are behind the wider US market. Now, I'm sure they would say that's a reflection of their approach. They're not just trying to be a, a mainstream US equity fund, but one wonders whether shareholders might take a different view. Indeed. Well, we won't be long to before we find out about that. Let's move on then and talk about, well, another infrastructure trust. We talked about them fundraising. This is GCP Infrastructure, ticker GCP, not surprisingly. Uh, and they've had some interim results. They've had interim results for the six months to the end of March, in which time uh, they saw a decline in their NAV from uh, about 104p down to 100 spot 78p. They did pay a dividend. There was 3.5p dividends for the period, but that was also down from 3.8p for the equivalent period 12 months earlier, though, to be fair, it was in line with their revised target. So what does that mean? Well, they're, 
Share price total return was down about 8.8%. So clearly a more difficult period for this one. And in, in terms of the kind of valuations, what impacted on valuations? Well, the increase in the corporation tax rates, and we've, we've discussed that before, the reduction in long-term electricity price forecasts and lower inflation forecasts as well. So though, though one suspects that that may have to be revised at some stage. Um, but this is an infrastructure debt fund, uh, and they seem to be quite busy in terms of the loans that they made uh, in the period. Um, and they also made the point that certainly as at the end of March, 42% of the portfolio was partially inflation protected as well. So again, it's a very interesting asset class, but this is different to some of the other infrastructure funds because it's the uh, infrastructure debt. Indeed. And as a result, therefore, I think this is one that doesn't actually trade at a big premium. Am I right about that? You're right. I mean, it's on a small discount, probably one or two percent. But yes, it is in uh, contrast with the majority of infrastructure funds. So just underlying the point that when you're looking at these kind of things, you really do need to look underneath the bonnet to see just because they got infrastructure in, in their name. It doesn't mean that they are all doing the same thing by any means at all. And this one, as you say, is focusing on debt rather than um, on big asset projects of a different kind. Let's talk about JLEN Environmental Assets, J-L-E-N. They've also had some annual results. Yep, they had their results out for the 12 months to the end of March. In that time, their NAV was also down about 5.4%. And again, that reflected the impact of the increase in UK corporation tax rate, uh, which they've applied for the remainder of the portfolio's life, which I would suggest that not all renewable energy infrastructure funds have done, and also the downward revision to electricity and gas price forecasts as well. But the, the dividends were up in regard to the period. They came in at 6.76p, and that compared with 6.66p in the previous year. And that was in line with target, and it was 1.07 times covered as well. So in terms of the target dividend for the forthcoming year, so the financial year to the 31st of March 2022, that's 6.8p. And that represents an increase, a modest increase of 0.6%. But um, they gave a bit of colour in terms of the portfolio. The generation was uh, above target. Uh, and they've also made um, some new acquisitions as well. So they've actually got 36 assets in the portfolio. And that now includes their first standalone battery uh, investment. And we talked about a lot about battery technology and also some low carbon transport assets as well. So the idea being they're diversifying away from the kind of perhaps more traditional areas of renewable energy infrastructure. Okay, so JLEN, it trades on a premium, I'm sure. Uh, it's interesting, though, also, I mean, is it not interesting that if the market's concerned about inflation, yet all these infrastructure funds are, and, and renewable energy funds are reducing their future power price forecasts? That's quite interesting. That doesn't seem to be quite uh, to square altogether in, uh, in one way. Admittedly, that was at the 31st of March. Maybe the people had second thoughts since then. But it's, uh, it suggests there's more than one way to look at what's going on in the wider world here. And... Uh, particularly for these infrastructure trusts, which are looking forward a long period, long life, they seem to be sort of accepting that inflation is not going to take off anyway in the in the medium to longer term, at least as far as their uh, projections are concerned at the moment. Would you would you think that's a fair comment? Yeah, I think it is. And, I, I, you know, we've talked about this before, but NAVs are on what they call a mark to model basis. So they're, they're not as they would be for a kind of a standard investment trust when you just basically reprice your portfolio daily to uh, closing share prices. There are any number of assumptions within these models, and invariably the NAVs are quite sensitive to changes in those assumptions, so inflation being one, tax rates being another. So you can see some significant changes over a period of time. So, uh, you know, it is clearly a headwind for in terms of the NAV performance, but I think people 
investors mainly kind of concentrate on the output. In other words, they look at the, the cash that's been generated from these portfolios and they look at the dividends that are being paid back to them uh, as investors. And certainly in that regard, the story has held up very well. The vast majority have been able to either preserve or continue to grow their dividends now over a number of years. Indeed they have. And that's, uh, as you say, a key selling point for that uh, particular sector. Well, let's move on. We've got one more trust to cover. And this section, well, I'm really surprised to see that it's actually Hypnosis Songs Fund. (laughs) Song, which we've talked about probably too much on this podcast, to be fair. But, you know, the music keeps flowing and so do we on this subject. They've actually said something about their performance as opposed to what the latest uh, catalogue acquisition might be. So what have they had to say? Well, they provided a, a trading update for the year to the 31st of March, in which time they had an NAV total return, uh, in dollar terms at least, up 15.7%. So their operative NAV was up 11%, which is the equivalent to their NAV. And also the net revenue increased as well, increased to $138 million. So the like-for-like portfolio valuation uplift was 9%. And obviously, to your point, they have made quite a few acquisitions and again, interesting insight into what's going on here. They, they made the point that actually the streaming income had increased by 18% as the pandemic drove adoption of more and more streaming services. But over the period, they acquired 84 catalogues at a cost of $1.06 billion. And the total portfolio now consists of 138 catalogues comprising 64,555 songs, which sounds an awful lot. But we'll get the full results at the end of June. Yes, indeed. And we said earlier on or last year that there were some questions about how much information they were disclosing. But the uh, performance of the shares suggests that the, certainly the sceptics, for the moment at least, are not winning the argument. It's interesting. You can look at their their website. They've got a lot more information on their website now. And it's one of the only investment trust websites I can think of where you have a lot of music videos on the, uh, on the homepage. So even if before you get to the uh, results, you can listen to Beyonce or you can listen to... Uh, Gwen Stefani and some of the other names you mentioned the other times. Uh, possibly Barry Manilow, but I can't see him at the moment. I'm actually scrolling through it as we speak. And uh, I'm sorry, Barry, you're not on the front page anymore, uh, which will be a big disappointment to you, I'm sure, as indeed to, <laughs> to all of us. So that's Hypnosis Songs Fund song. And that brings us to the end of this uh, particular results section. The only thing I want to mention at the end here is, well, a couple of things. First of all, We will be represented uh, next week at an event called the Mellow Investment Trust and Fund event on Tuesday afternoon between four o'clock and eight o'clock. And if you want to come along and hear us and a lot of other managers of investment trusts, five or half a dozen other investment trust managers, you can do so. And if you go to the Moneymakers website, which is, I'm sure I don't need to remind you, is money-makers.co, no .uk at the end, by the way, uh, you can get a free ticket to this event. But of course, if you think you've already had enough of hearing us talk, we're not going to be the whole show, I hasten to add. We're only going to be doing a a bit at the beginning and at the end. Uh, But if you come along and join us, we'd be delighted to uh, see you there. What else can I say? Well, just a quick mention that in the Moneymakers Circle this week, I'm going to do a little video about what's been happening in the market and particularly focusing on this question of what is going to happen to inflation over the shorter and medium term, which, as you correctly observed, Simon, is the topic of the day, at least until something else comes along to preoccupy investors. So thank you very much, uh, Simon, for your time this week, and we look forward to uh, speaking again next week. 
This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.